Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 29 years of law enforcement analysis experience all with public corruption cases with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. She is an active member of the North Florida chapter of ILEA, and I just found out that we live 400 feet apart. Please welcome (laughs) Kelly Kimsey. Kelly, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great, great. Great to be your neighbor, too, let me tell you. I pass (laughs) your house every day now and realize there he is. That's where he lives. I can't believe that. So uh, for the audience. Such a small world. For the audience in the prep call, we're going over just the different information. I'd interviewed Kelly as part of the 40th anniversary series with Ayalia. Certainly aware of her, knew she lived in Tallahassee. And then in the prep call the other day, we're talking and I say, hey, my my neighbor, I think, used to work for FDLE doing corruption cases. And, and your reaction was, wait a minute, she can't be your neighbor because she's my neighbor. The neighbor is in between our two houses. And then, of course, I had to get on, be a nerdo and get on Google and ex- get the exact measurement. It's literally 400 feet away our two houses are. That's our analytical brains. That's yeah. why, you know, exactly. People probably ask me, like, why aren't you doing this in person? Why aren't you doing this? I was like, <laughs> eh, we probably could. But anyway, I could yell from my back porch. That's right. I could stand on my front porch porch and you could probably hear me. So So this is going to be a great episode. I'm really excited about it. This is a topic that we really haven't discussed much in terms of public corruption. But first, let's see how you got there, Kelly. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, my father was in law enforcement. So I was always, you know, and I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. I'm I'm dating myself now. (laughs) But um, so my favorite shows were Chips and Emergency and both my dad being in law enforcement. It just seemed like, you know, that that was where the action is. That's what I wanted to do. And so when I decided to go to school, um, I went to Florida State University and I got a degree in criminology and which is, you know, actually, for those of you who don't know out there, Florida State has an extremely awesome criminal justice program there. It was there that I met somebody by the name of Dr. Jim Sewell, and he was one of my professors once I got into my major. He actually uh, taught criminology, and he was, at the time, a director at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And so he mentioned uh, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement while in class and, and said, you know, how great it was and everything. So I thought, oh, well, you know, so I went up and talked to him after after class one day, and he said, you should go intern there. They would love to have, you know, new people. So I did. I interned with FDLE in 1993 with the Florida Intelligence Center and never left. Went ahead and <laughs> kept working there until I graduated and and then got a, a full-time position. Been with FDLE ever since. And, and my position, strangely, you know, most people laugh about the fact that, you know, they move around. Nowadays, millennials move around, move around in their careers a lot. And not me. I've been a part of one section at FDLE for the vast majority of my career, and that's the Office of Executive Investigations. I started there uh, in 1995, and we ha- haven't left. So uh, I, I'm kind of a subject matter expert in the area <laughs> of just my area because of the fact that I've been there so long. But uh, I love law enforcement. I love the analytical career. I've been very, very predominant in in, uh, pushing forth the criminal justice uh, intelligence analyst profession. I've been an instructor for the last 20 years, trying to teach uh, all throughout the state of Florida, you know, the new analysts coming about and taking our profession to that next level. And I love teaching. I love uh, sharing my knowledge and, and, and learning, constantly learning. I learn every time I teach from something from someone else out there. And then, of course, you know, working investigations. I was what's, what's considered an investigative analyst for the majority of my career, where I actually were, was working side by side with other um, sworn law enforcement members investigating public corruption investigations until I became a supervisor. And <laughs> then I kind of got out of the fun there for a little while, can become an administrator. And uh, but still, you know, I'm still, you know, a part of the the, the world and in the same area. So I still get to hear about it and I'm still training. So, but that that's pretty much where I've been the whole time. People laugh and think, oh, you've never really gone anywhere else. And I'm like, nope, I, I settled into my niche, I think. And then, <laughs> and I just went from there. 
And I always say I'm going to die. I, I started here. I'm going to die here. I swear, <laughs> I'm going to retire um, in the same section I started in. But it's not really what I started, but very, very early on in my career where I started. You know, you have been with the same office this whole time, but it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty big office, right? You're talking right. about the law enforcement arm of the state of Florida. Right. Florida Department of Law Enforcement is the state law enforcement agency in Florida. Unlike a lot of states, when they say that, like, you know, other uh, other surrounding states, when we have, they say the state law enforcement, that usually means the highway patrol. And we actually, Florida is unique in the sense that we have an actual Bureau of Investigations, which is FDLE, where we conduct criminal investigations, domestic security, and, and we have an entire, you know, mission statement that does not involve actually the highway patrol aspect, which is in most states. Um, and that, of course, is with the Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles, and they encompass Florida Highway Patrol. So we, for a very, very long time, don't, did not have any uniform patrol per se, and uh, not until 9-11. And after 9-11, we took over the ranks of Capitol Police, which is, of course, the law enforcement agency that is over the Capitol and Capitol buildings and the security of the Capitol. And so then from that point, we did get a, a, a uniform side first responder type aspect. But before that, we we were strictly investigations. So yeah, we, you know, and, you know, we're in Florida statute for that. So investigations is what FDLE is mainly used for. But believe me, I work in customer service now, and you wouldn't believe how many people in Florida don't, do think that FDLE is Florida Highway Patrol, and we are not. We, you know, there's a whole nother, whole another agency for that. So uh, and they do a great job there. Too. So then take us back then, you're interning, then you're starting there in the office. This, uh, just uh, take us back. What what you were you feeling? What you were you thinking? What's how'd you get your uh, your feet wet in this? Well, when I interned, I was in the intelligence section, the Florida Intelligence Center, and that's actually the only time period really in my career that I did intelligence work. But then when I got a full time position, I for a very short time I worked in our criminal justice information services section, which is processing criminal histories and where we create criminal uh, uh, criminal histories in the state of Florida, what's called FCIC, which is the Florida Criminal Information Center. And I only worked that for a very short time before I obviously in 1995, I joined Office of Exec Investigations. And when I joined that, I actually was assigned to Protective Operations, which is uh, housed at the Florida Governor's Mansion. Um, My term there was during the Child's Administration. And um, I worked there wearing many hats from administrative to analytical to where I pretty much was the go-to all for any and everything that needed to be done as far as the travel court coordination for the governor and, and security for when he traveled. It's basically you coordinate all the travels for the governor, the first family, and then of course visiting dignitaries. Anybody who comes to the state of Florida, we help in protection so that they reciprocate when we travel to their states. That was pretty much what I did. And I loved that job, but I, I only stayed there for a few years before becoming a true crime intelligence analyst in the background section of the Office of Executive Investigations, where we conducted the backgrounds for um, all employees at the headquarters building uh, to include the sworn background investigations. And and that was one of the best places to start as, as an analyst because of the fact that it, you, you really learn every aspect of, you know, digging background information up on people and making sure you learn everything and everything about somebody is one of the key, you know, components of law enforcement and making sure your targets are who you need to know. And, and so backgrounds was a good foundation on how to re- research, be a good researcher. So that was kind of my, my first tiptoe foray into, I did some analytical work as far as threat assessments and stuff during my protective operations days. But during backgrounds, you learn, you, I really honed my skills and, and research and, and uh, background information on subjects. So then with the background investigations and the research, is it just databases that you're doing the research or are you out and about doing interviews making phone calls you're going beyond just the database you do go down beyond databases we do make contact with local law enforcement agencies you make contact with employing agency uh people where you know the places where the person previously worked court systems so you, you have a lot of contact we did uh, back in the day go and if it was local we would would travel to the like if someone worked at a, a, a state agency in town, we would go to that state agency and do it. But a lot of it now has been moved to uh, if it's outside the state, uh, not outside the state, outside the, the jurisdiction I'm in, which is the Tallahassee area, we send that lead to one of the regions and the regional analysts will handle that kind of stuff. And they'll go out and about and take in for sworn though, for any sworn background we do, any th- type of um, interviews or, or going out and contacting agencies, that's done specifically by sworn law enforcement uh, because it is for a sworn law enforcement officer. So, but, but yeah, so I mean, there 
there, there's a lot to our, our background investigations. There's no getting around that. Back in the day, in the early 90s, that, that really was, it's come a long way. We really take backgrounds seriously, obviously, uh, in law enforcement, all law enforcement agencies do nowadays. And so, yeah, there's it, there's definitely some legwork to be done on those. And hence why I said it, it's a really good place to hone your analytical skills because of the fact that you're doing a lot of research, digging and, you know, finding those leads and following the leads and following the information and coming up with a good, thorough background investigation is, is always good to any agency that you're working. So is there um, one, is there one particular background that comes to mind when you think back? <laughs> There's a, that's the best thing about backgrounds. That's, you know, and that was kind of how I was with public corruption is when you do, you know, with public corruption, it was more of financial analysis when you learn finances on somebody, but when you do a background or financial analysis on somebody, man, you learn everything about them. You can, you can tell you, you, you know, everything about what they do, where they go, who they hang out with. And um, so, yeah, so inevitably there are always ones that come back with, you are not going to, you, know, you, you ain't going to believe what I found. And while I don't want to probably repeat any of the stories that I have, but you know, you, you definitely can't come across a few snarker ones. My favorite part of backgrounds is the fact that after the background is completed on, on subjects, they, they are either of course hired and, or they're discontinued and you can be discontinued of course, for what was located in your background investigation. And I always find it funny that we have, we do, we submit a letter to the person stating that pursuant to your, you know, your application with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, we have discontinued your background investigation, you know, and your the hiring process due to what we located. And they then get told that they can make a public records request on the background to find out what the problem was. And there were so many that you come across and they go and they, they, they do request the public record and want to see what the background says, which is, you know, fine, except for a lot of the stuff that is in there is stuff that there's no way you didn't know. <laughs> You're like, well, you lived this life. You should have kind of known what we were going to find. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, that, that always sometimes ran, it was fun to me with the fact that you're like, okay, you didn't know what was going to come up in this background. Yeah. Were you not present for some of these incidents? <laughs> So, yeah. Well, in Florida, I'm surprised all those results aren't public knowledge. It's incredible to me, the sunshine laws here and what you can get. So it surprises me that all those background investigations aren't public record. They are. They are, Once they're closed, they are public record and they can be public record. You know, we have such, as you were stating, we have such broad public record laws within the state of Florida. So any background investigation that's concluded can be public recorded by anybody, including the, the applicant who did it. So, um, but yeah, it just, you know, it, they, you know, it's always interesting to see who, who wanted to know what's in their background. If they, you know, didn't realize we were going to find the arrests or the incidents or the, you know, whatever the case was. Yeah. So. All right. So then how, did you uh, put in for, or did you get transferred over for public corruption? While I worked in backgrounds, the other unit within exec investigations is the public corruption unit. And they had uh, a handful of analysts through attrition, you know, they moved out doing to different things. There was an opening and, and I, they came and said, would you like to transfer into the public corruption unit? And I was like, absolutely that, you know, and, and that kind of went from there about 1999 is when I transferred into public corruption and was there throughout the rest of my investigative analyst until I became a supervisor. A lot of times an analyst, when they work in law enforcement, they analysts are assigned units. They are assigned like you're going to work in the violent crime section or you're going to work in the, you know, uh, grand theft, you know, theft in, you know, whatever section you're going to work in the fraud section, you're going to work in the, you know, whatever. And what was good about public corruption was, was that we literally dealt with all different kinds of crimes because of the fact that pretty much anything was game if that person did it while they were a public official. So we did. We I've worked anything from homicides and investigations to, uh, you know, for, of course, fraud, uh, official misconduct, uh, bribery election violation cases. We, I did some, you know, sexual harassment, child molestation. You, I mean, literally it was just a huge foray because at any point, you know, we could also a lot of, not only are you looking at public officials, but we're looking at public um, employees because a handful of the ones that we booked out through the years were looking at actually law enforcement agencies and or uh, state attorney's offices in reference to their whether they they conducted an investigation, say an investigation happens, they conduct they conduct investigation. Then after it concludes, there is an allegation of official misconduct on part of the law enforcement officers and the uh, detectives that investigated, and or the prosecution. So there's a there's an allegation of prosecutorial misconduct, and so that's when we would go back in, and you have to kind of reinvestigate that crime to be able to know everything, the steps that the officers took and the steps that the the prosecutors took throughout the investigation. So that's why through the years I investigated so many. We, we, 
there was child abductions. There was, I mean, it was a, a massive amount of, of different, you know, range of crimes because of the fact that it can be almost anything. And that was what made the case so very interesting is that you don't, you know, because I think if I ever had gone the, the normal route and, and been, say, violent crime, I think after 10 years of, of investigating violent crime, you get very jaded and you get very, you know, you know, it, it can take a toll, so, so to speak, and, or you're doing fraud for, for 15 years. I mean, that could get, I mean, I don't want to say the word boring, but you know, you know what I'm saying? You could, you're doing the same thing over and over. So this was, it was great that I was in a position that it really, you, you, it was like, you never knew what the next day, what the next investigation would bring. So mm -hmm. that kept me on my toes. So I'm trying to make sure I understand the, the range of this office. So if a public official commits a crime off duty <laughs> at night let's say let's say they they just killed somebody right in the <laughs> evening on their own time is that something that your office would investigate since it is a public official not necessarily most of the time it would would be involved it would have to involve the public office someone who just a public official who went and, and drunk driving and then killed somebody god forbid uh, and mm -hmm. that no that would be handled by the local police department and you know just because they're a public official it wouldn't that you know, to have it come to the rise of the office of the executive it usually involved the duties you know and and position of the elected official and their duties but like i said because of the fact that we also looked at past investigations by law enforcement, investigating a law enforcement investigation that may have taken place and if, whether or not the law enforcement agency did anything wrong during the, the course of the investigation or if the prosecution did something wrong, we could look at that. But yeah, it's, you know, there's no steady and fast rule necessarily that I, I don't want to speak out of turn and say we mm -hmm. wouldn't do something or we would. But, you know, on a whole, you know, a crime that was completely outside the scope of, of official duties, that no, that could be some normal uh, local law enforcement that could handle. And so I got a list of the types of investigations here that you have worked over the years. So some of them, I'm, I'm just going to name them. And if you could just give us an example of what that is. So bid tampering. Okay. Well, we, uh, welcome to state government. Welcome to any kind of government. Actually, as you know, um, in government, uh, certain rules and regulations make it so that we actually have to put bids out for certain certain types of either products or services or something to that effect. And bid tampering goes back to when some, exactly what it sounds like, where you know deals are being made. You tell somebody um, we're supposed to. What happens is when a, a request for bid goes out, you you can't let those vendors know what it is exactly that the agency is looking for, what exactly the office is looking for, because that gives an unfair advantage to that vendor to be able to say exactly, hey, here's our bid and this is what we're going to do at this price or what other the prices are coming in at uh, from the other vendors or whatever. That's bid tampering where you're saying you're, you're tampering with the process. You know, it could even go about as far as to, but do you see what I'm saying? In other mm -hmm. words, you're, you're doing something that's going to give undue favor to another person uh, or another uh, vendor for that matter. So that's yeah. bid tampering. Yeah. And it's kind of the counter to that would be the kickback. Bribery so, and big yeah. uh, kickbacks is basically kickbacks is where they offer the vendor will give you this contract in but you know it, it doesn't have to be the the law, public official offering it could be the vendor offering either way the point is that the public official receives money for having that vendor have that contract or having that you know whatever it is so we had that on one of our investigations the big investigation that i'm most proud of the department of corrections there were kickback involved where it was the department of corrections has a commissary for the inmates to be able to purchase food and various other sundries and there it's obviously a huge contract for certain businesses and the commissioner and the assistant director were receiving kickbacks from that uh, from that company they hired to be able to provide that you know and it doesn't have to be i'll just stop there that that you know it, it's it definitely happens it's out there it can um it can definitely be a problem within the the public sector How about prosecutorial misconduct prosecutorial misconduct is when the prosecutors do something that they shouldn't be doing whether they I don't even want to go into all the different things that they could do, but you know, it, it happens where, where somewhere along the line, the prosecution, they cross the line, they break a law, they do something that is not within judicial uh, process that they're supposed to do. So that's what pro prosecutorial misconduct. Okay. Conspiracy to defraud. 
<laughs> conspiracy is is scheme to defraud. That is where a lot of times you think of the word fraud. You commit fraud. Mm-hmm. Something you do something that false claim of benefits for which he or she is not entitled to in order to avoid a liability for payment. Okay, that's <laughs> fraud. So scheme to defraud or a conspiracy to do it would be a lot of times where you say, hey, this is a scheme to defraud. It's not just one instance. It's where they've done it numerous over and over and over in time. Conspiracy involves where there's, you know, they plan to do it. This is how they're going to do it. They take out plans to, you know, figure out how the best way to defraud somebody of something. So. All right. And uh, death investigation. Yeah, we definitely did some, uh, a handful of death investigations. And what that involved was because of the fact that, again, uh, for instance, there are several that I can and ha- can think of that we we went back and where the it's you're going back after the fact. In other words, a death has occurred and a law enforcement agency has investigated that death. What happens is the years go by and something comes up that leads to the possibility that there was some type of mis- official misconduct on part of the law enforcement. There was some type of misconduct on part of the prosecution, and because of that, you know here you know a death investigation is one of the you know obviously the worst investigations anybody can work because it's death. I mean. It's the worst crime out there, murder. So what happens is we would then go in after the fact, after the, and review the investigation to determine whether or not everything that was done by the law enforcement agency or by the prosecution was correct and and, and everything was followed by the rules and, and whatever. And because of that, you literally are looking at everything all over again, almost like investigating the death again, because you're making sure that they, you know, followed the rules, that they did all the steps that they should. And if they didn't do the steps, how did that affect, you know, if they didn't do certain things, how did that affect the outcome of the investigation? So yeah, we definitely went, would go back and look at things like that. Okay. So then let's go over a little bit of the anatomy of the public corruption investigation, because I'm assuming that most investigations start with a complaint. Somebody bringing this to your all's attention that, hey, this happened. Will you go look into it to see if anything is not right? Is that correct? Right. I mean, a lot of uh, our investigations are brought to us by the sheriffs and or public officials themselves. They can be brought to us by citizens or we can be ordered by the governor pursuant to a, a governor ordered uh, issue uh, by the governor's office. So there's different, definitely different, some different ways that, that investigations get brought to us. I'd say the majority of them are through the governor's office, but that's not all of them. Some of them, like I said, do are we are requested by a law, another law enforcement agent to come in and, and look at some pumps to, to determine if anything was wrong. Okay. And then from from you as the analyst, you assign the case, and then I want to kind of go over the maybe the compare contrast. And I know you've been doing this all you know all your career, but I want to compare and contrast how public corruption case from the analytical perspective compares and contrasts to a maybe what maybe somebody say is a typical criminal investigation on a homicide a robbery street crime well the difference between a public corruption investigation and any other investigation is usually but i mean the main aspect of it is the fact that you are investigating somebody who's already in the public eye you're investigating a public official which makes it a very high profile investigation majority of public corruption investigations are in the press they're always you know people they know that these investigations are taking place you know may sometimes a lot of the times the press knows about certain things going on before we even start the investigation and that's why it gets kind of brought up the press finds something that's happened and and or look into something and, and, it, and it gets brought to the public attention. So that alone, it, the fact that, you know, everybody is interested in it, everybody's looking at it, it's very, you know, it's dealing with people that, you know, everyday people know, um, makes it very different than the, the, you know, the regular Joe Schmo investigation on the street, because, you know, those don't necessarily always make it, you know, they don't always make it into the papers, they don't always, you know, I mean, have everybody interested in them. So you, yeah, you definitely have a, you know, a spotlight on you when you're conducting public and you're also dealing with people who the way I look at it today is that, you know, instances of corruption and bribery and fraud and theft and, you know, official misconduct, the citizens have a right to expect that their government officials conduct themselves beyond reproach. And, and it's our duty, not just as law enforcement, but as citizens to ensure that our officials discharge their duties ethically and honestly. So it, it, corruption, of course, has been around 
since the very first government ever. There's always been corruption. And so that's we have to be looking into those public officials that have become more interested in serving themselves than serving the public. So that alone, because you're dealing with that public, you know, that person is there to represent the public. It, it, it makes it a different investigation. It's just that much more important. Um, not that any other investigation is important, but it, it, you know, and it's definitely got, like I said before, that spotlight where people are going to, you're going to see where the investigation follows. They're going to follow that investigation. They're going to follow it to its conclusion and it's going to be published on whatever it is that comes out of it. So, and it might affect, you know, laws, regulations, you know, legislate, you know, who's in office. I mean, all those things can get affected. So it affects this investigation, you know, public corruption investigation affects, affects the public. Yeah. It's kind of, and until you're dealing with people that are powerful, people that are well-connected and maybe wealthy, going to be hiring probably the top level lawyers to defend them. And, but it's got to be odd for a corruption case to be ongoing and that particular official still being in office because it's not always that they go on administrative leave they're still doing their job you might have this public corruption investigation going on simultaneously to them still holding office well i mean we live in the society that you are innocent until proven guilty Mm -hmm. So um, we are looking for the facts just because there is a public inv uh, corruption investigation going on or official misconduct or any of those things where they're investigating the facts and the facts might, might lead that the person didn't do anything wrong. So they're, you know, so it, it, to me, that doesn't seem strange that they may still be in office. Sometimes, yes, you're right. They are, you know, put on suspension, you know, um, whatever the case may be, but on uh, other times they are still conducting their official duties. And, you know, and again, that is the way our society runs and our justice system. And that, you know, there's a reason for that. And that is that you're not guilty until you are, you know, found guilty. So an investigation is not that, that is investigation is to find the truth. And the truth could be that they are innocent. Just so that's why we consider them such until that investigation is over. How do you think the analytical role compares and contrasts to a typical investigation? I don't want to say it's very different. I mean, because mm -hmm. you would use the same techniques and, and tools to conduct any investigation. The only thing I think would be a little different is you do examine, for instance, conflict of interest. That plays more of a role in a public corruption investigation than it does maybe in normal criminal investigations where, you know, obviously a conflict of interest for a public official is very important to know. But other than that, I mean, you're looking, I mean, you do the same thing for anything. You're looking for patterns of activity. You're looking at behavior, possible motives. You're, you're looking at, you know, their finance, their finances, because, you know, sadly, no matter what type of investigation is, I mean, I mean, majority of them, money is the root core of, of all, not all, I, I should take that back, is root core of many <laughs> of what the ills of our society. And it, it, so it, it is something that plays a role in, in a majority of our investigations. So looking at, you know, their financial disclosures, that is something that's good about public official investigations. There is something out there specifically for the state of Florida that we have, which is financial disclosures. All public officials have to report their finances every year. And so we, you're able to see what it is that they say that their, their income is or what their debts are and whatnot. And that's a pub that's public record. Anybody can look at that for all the public officials in the state of Florida. But the, the tools and techniques that an analyst would use as far as research is, is the same across the board. It, it just knowing, again, that everything you do will be looked at, scrutinized because you're, you're doing it against somebody that, like I said, you're not, this isn't the, your, your neighbor, John Smith down the road. This is the head of an agency. This is a sheriff. This is a elected county commissioner. It's a, you, you get my point. It, you take that into account of the fact that, that we don't want to conduct fishing expeditions. You don't want to be looking into things that to us that, you know, you, you investigate the crime. You, you don't, it, there's no need to, you know, dig through things that aren't relevant to the investigation. And you do that for all investigations. You want to make sure that you keep your focus and just investigate what the allegations are and what's out there. So are there only two outcomes, either yes, they broke the, the law or no, they didn't? No, there's actually several outcomes that can come out of a public corruption. But of course, we have a criminal charge can come out of it, charging and arresting somebody. There can also be uh, without a criminal charge, there can be a suspension or removal. So even though we don't charge them with something, they can be removed from office if the governor can, can remove people from office. Um, there can be a recommendation for administrative changes where we say, OK, you know, we're not going to charge them anything. But mm, the way this happened, maybe we need to make some rules and, you know, you need to change some things administratively so this doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. There can be a recommendation 
foundation for development of corruption prevention strategies where you say, okay, well, this happened, but to prevent this type of corruption happen again, we might need to do the, take these steps. And then of course, yeah, it can be dismissed or it could be undis- unsubstantiated and say that, nope, the, the complaint, and we, you know, a, com- a complaint can absolutely come back and, and say, yep, everything that you think happened or the allegation that it was in the complaint didn't happen. That's not what, you know, and it's unsubstantiated and unfounded. So, so there's different, mm-hmm. there's definitely different things that can come out of it. Hi, this is Sheila Dorn. Do you want to build your credibility with field personnel, with police officers on the street? Get a candy dish, put it on your desk and fill it with good candy. That's your opportunity to talk with people and engage. You can send out a million emails. People might know your name, but they don't really know you until you talk to them face to face. And that candy dish is an opportunity to talk with people and really get to know them. Hi, this is Steve French, and I have a message to you about language. Language is really important when you're doing a job. For instance, it isn't a zucchini, it's a courgette. It isn't a lobby, it's a foyer. It isn't Z, it's Z. Buses go on routes, not routes, and it is never, ever made out of aluminum. All right, well, this brings me to your analyst badge stories and so these for those that may be new to the show this is the career defining case or projects that an analyst works on i would say my case that i'm most proud to be a part of was would be the one that was involving the florida department of correction and that is in between 2004 and 2006 we uh, had an investigation into corruption within the florida department of corrections that resulted in like six arrests in the main investigation and we had numerous spin-off investigations that also re- uh, resulted in about 11 arrests. And then also the result of firing or forced resignations of about 15 correctional employees. So that investigation that we conducted there was one, we investigated something and we made a change. The initiation of the investigation started with allegations that the secretary of the Department of Correction, James Crosby, and one of the regional directors, Region 1, Alan Clark, had utilized state material and property and state resources, which is basically money and personnel for personal gain. This included the use of correctional officers to perform personal services for Crosby and Clark while they were on duty and were not related to any official DOC duties. I was utilized a lot during the several years of the investigation, including you know extensive reviews of documents provided by the DOC, such as timesheets, inventory, purchasing card records, as well as documents we subpoenaed from various vendors doing business with DOC to include banking and financial records. And ultimately the investigation revealed a broad array of legal activities that were related, directly related to both of the the secretary and that regional director and a select group of DOC employees closely associated with them. What were some of the tasks that they were having these employees do? Well, for, I can name a few of the things, including, and some of these led to spinoff investigations. We made rests for numerous thefts, abuse of inmate labor, where they'd have inmates do work, like work on their personal homes, their personal boats. Their, they actually hired a phantom employee to work exclusively for the DOC softball team. And he was he never worked for DOC. He only played softball. Um, (laughs) That's a hell of a swing. Yeah. Uh, And then, of course, ultimately that kickback scheme I talked about directly involving Crosby and Clark. It it was a quite investigation that led to numerous arrests and a a real hard look at the Department of Corrections as it was at the time and, and hopefully led to them being able to better serve the state in what they do and, and got rid of some of that stuff that wasn't going well. But uh, they both, Crosby and Clark, pled guilty to federal court with reference their involvement in the, the kickbacks. Could this case have stayed with the state of Florida or it had to go federal? Um, we got a lot of uh, state charges out of it, but yes, it did go mm-hmm. federal where we worked exclu- you know, with the FBI on the investigation. So, But a lot of the the arrests were made, they were state arrests because it, like I said, it uncovered a broad range of corruption on levels within different levels within F, uh, FDOC. And, but like I said, they became a stronger agency following those arrests of those certain corrupt employees helped them become a stronger agency. So that, that you know, like I said, I think we, we made, that was the one we, where I felt we made a difference. And that's what like I said, I was stating before, you know, the, the public, we, we deserve that. We deserve people that are there to, if they're, you're a public servant, you're supposed to be serving the public. You're not supposed to be taking advantage. And so, yeah, I was really proud of that investigation being a part of it because of the fact that we, it came, you know, we were able to uncover so much and, and clean up. So what were some of the tasks that you did for the investigation? 
I had to do um, a lot of reviews. We we looked at purchasing cards. So those are finance. So those are records where um, members of the state they you you actually are issued a credit card. And so mm-hmm. you so those are purchasing card records, credit card records, inventory because there was allegations of inventory being you know taken and personally being used. Timesheets, looking at time records. Obviously, there's the the phantom employee looking at that. And then of course you know they there was several spinoff investigations in reference to vendors that DOC was using and money that they were getting from vendors or if they were selling products, selling metal and whatnot to those vendors and then pocketing that money. So a lot of financial records and business records I'd had to go through to keep track of what was coming in from DOC and what was actually coming back, coming out of DOC, such as like the metal going to the recycling centers. And then that money that would be received from the recycling center, was it going back into DOC? Was it going into their pockets? Was it where? So yeah, there was a lot of different, and then of course, general basic research on on the subjects too, just knowing everybody and who they work, how long they work there. Yeah, it was, you know, it, it was a very, you know, large investigation and my analytical work, it ranged throughout the time. It was almost like anything they needed. I was there for them to hopefully give them what they wanted and what they needed to find somebody if they were looking for people. We had to deal with a lot of inmates and interview inmates. And those in, some of those inmates had already moved on and had been you know, discharged from the Department of Corrections and we'd have to locate them. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely an investigation that stays in my mind. And it's now been however many years since. And I still, you know, I feel a lot of pride in that one. Yeah. How long was this going on? I, to be fair, I, it's been a few years. I can't remember when, you know, we, but it had been obviously going on for some time, you know, for, you know, but our investigation started in 2004. So that, like I said, that was one of my, um, I'd been an analyst for about five years with EI at that point. And so, it was a two to three year investigation, you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And especially once we got into the federal aspect of it for that. But, you know, it was just one of those things that every time we, we talked with someone, something else would come up. And so we, like I said, we had another, we had, I think it was 14 maybe in spinoff cases where you find you have the initial investigation and then other things arise and you get about, you know, you spin off an, uh, other investigations. So, yeah. So what did the two main guys get? They were charged federally. They pled guilty to federal court uh, for taking kickbacks. So yeah, so they went to prison, federal prison. Do you know how long? I'd have to look that up. I apologize. I don't have mm-hmm. it in front of me. Hmm. That's interesting. And and so this in particular brought back change. The agency took on new leadership after the, the, this investigation. So that was great. And, you know, of course, that new leadership pled to, you know, go ahead and clean, you know, continue cleaning up and making sure that the, the, this type of activity wasn't continuing. And so that that was great. That was, you know, and like I said, we did, you know, arrest a total of, my gosh, it was 15 correctional employees. So that's, I mean, think about it. That's a good chunk of you know, at least, and also a deterrent for those knowing that if they were, if, if we didn't invest, uh, arrest you, but you did, were doing something wrong, maybe you shouldn't do it anymore. <laughs> was there any policies put in place? To be honest with you, I'm sure they did. And I was wrong. I'm sorry. There were 11 arrests, but 15 resignations. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm sure, like I said, that was what was good was that they got a new uh, secretary who came in the door and as well as the inspector general's office, which is their investigative hand in department of corrections during the old regime for uh, this, Secretary Crosby, he did not like utilizing the Inspector General's office, and and so they they're kind of their hands were tied sometimes. And of course, so with the new administration coming in, you know, they pledged that you know the Inspector General's office would be able to have free reign to keep going back and doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is to to help. So when there is misconduct or any kind, to put an end to it. So yeah, it was uh, like I said, it I very proud of that investigation because of the fact that we seem to help make a difference. Um, but again, D- DOC and where they've come to this day, it's all them. They, you know, you have to, you know, pick up and move on and know that, you know, we can make a change. I certainly could talk about that all afternoon. I, I think it's a fascinating topic and certainly 29 years worth of work that you got there. I certainly could talk about it for hours and hours. And before we move on, just a shameless plug that we do have our 100th podcast episode coming up March 28th. We will have a special guest, so stay tuned for that. So Kelly, I do want to talk about your transition from an analyst to a supervisor. And and you alluded to it before where you go from being a worker to being an administrator. So talk about that transition and just from your perspective, managing analysts, dealing with executives. The way I look at it is, you know, when you're the analyst, when you're, it's it's like this in any job, you know, when you're the sworn law enforcement, when you're the officer or the agent or whatever, when you're actually, you know, the line in the, in the lineman, 
you're you're doing the fun stuff. You're doing the investigations. You're using all these tools that you learn about every day, all these different skill sets that you find, all the, you know, running the databases, you know, doing the analysis, you know, looking at phone records, looking at uh, finance, you know, you're doing all the, the fun stuff. And then when you, you move to administration, you know, you're out of that sandbox, as they call it, you know, you're out of the, you're not playing, you're not there to play anymore. Now you have to administer and you have to supervise. And while I wanted to do that, I wanted, the, you know, that was the logical next step. You know, you, you get sad sometimes when you think about the fact that people will say something nowadays and they'll be like, oh, well, do you utilize this? And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't, you know, I don't really get to play in those things anymore because <laughs> I mean, I'm a supervisor now. I don't, you know, really, you know, so that's sad. But in the whole, you know, being a mentor and being a person that can lead analysts to be better and to help mold new analysts coming up, that was the next step. And so that part of the job I love. I love the fact that I'm able to be able to supervise and, and help analysts be better at what they do and help this profession continue to do great and get recognition. So that aspect of it is great. But, you know, you know, no one loves the admin part of any job. You know, it's like, oh, you know, timesheets and evaluations and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, that's never the fun, never the fun part. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And, you know, uh, again, I enjoy being able to mentor and and making sure that, you know, we keep moving and the analytical profession, the criminal justice analytical profession in the right direction. And I am able to do that as a supervisor. So it was the next logical step. But again, it, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and say that the green monster doesn't come out every once in a while. And I get jealous when I see, you know, an analyst working a case and be like, Oh, I'd love to look at all those. You know, I'd love to be doing some of that, you know, because you do, you, you, you miss it. You, you, you think, Oh, how much fun you guys are having to, you know, find those red flags, find the, you know, find the truth. You know, that's the other thing is that, you know, you're looking not it doesn't always lead down the path of arrest and that can be just as well as to find exonerate somebody and say you know this person didn't do whatever it is that they're being accused of and so yeah it, it you know I ain't gonna say I'm not gonna say I'm, not, I'm human I'm human <laughs> and I I can say that occasionally I get a little jealous but uh it, you know it's all for the best yeah what about dealing with executives what advice would you have for someone maybe that's just a just becoming a supervisor and dealing with executives. Well, I mean, the main thing is communication and, and to make sure that, that they know what it is that your analysts and your profession can and can provide and to make sure that you, they know that, that we have a voice, that we, you know, we can contribute. And that that's the biggest, that's what I've been fighting for all, you know, my career is to make sure they know that there is a huge difference between the sworn and the non-sworn as far as analysts and, and what we have in our agency, which are agents and inspectors, because of course, you know, they carry a badge and they have a gun and they have arrest powers and absolutely. But we are just as much an integral part of these investigations and can contribute just as much, if not equally, sometimes to it. And so, you know, that's what I fight for every day to, is to make sure that we're seen and we're heard. You know, and luckily, you know, I have an agency that completely, totally is behind our analytical field 100% and just is there to help us and, and know and knows our, our worth. And I could, hence why I've been here for 29 years that I've been here because of that very reason. So, but, you know, but that doesn't mean I just sit back on my laurels. You don't, you know, you don't ever, you know, you always continue to strive to make sure that we're worth the time to take and in, in, include us in the game, include us in the in the investigation and make sure that, you know, we, we can contribute. How does a public corruption investigation today compare to what it was in 1995? It's not very different, to be mm -hmm. fair. <laughs> Sadly, a lot of the crimes today we're seeing, you know, people say, oh, law enforcement is so different today because of the fact that criminals, at least a lot of them, are moving to this more electronic world. Um, mm -hmm. So crimes are being done, you know, but to be fair, a lot of it is still the same. It's still the same theft and fraud and violent crime. And I mean, so the core of it's still out there. They might be finding easier ways to do it or more mischievous ways to be able to hide what they do. But, you know, I mean, granted, the, you know, the idea of Bitcoins and, you know, all that kind of great stuff and how now <laughs> that they can use Snapchat and Instagrams and make quick thing, you know, do things that, you know, where they can communicate and hide it better. But the crime itself is is really, this, you know, the criminal aspect of it is really the same. You know, they're just get better at doing it. And public corruption is the same. You know, they, they're doing the same thing since they've been doing 
forever, which is looking out, you know, not all of them, just the ones that we look at, you know, they're, it's, they're in it for themselves. And it, so that underlying part of it is there. Uh, it's just sometimes how they're getting it done and how they're hiding it, but uh, they can, they can get better at it. But most of the time it's, it's about the same. What do you think is the biggest improvement you observed <laughs> over your time in the profession? Well, I mean, I'm going to give the most generic answer and because I'm sadly, it is the most obvious. And that is I started <laughs> in 1993 and to look up a driving record for someone I had to look on microfiche. And for some of you that are listening, <laughs> you don't even know what that is, but I can assure you it wasn't fun. And yeah, it was little time, you know, little, <laughs> literally you had to put it in a machine to be able to read it. And they were these little, you know, it was almost like, uh, what is it called? The photograph exposure thing, you know, I'm talking about with a the, the, the film anyway. strip. Yes, it's like that. And you get the only way to see what was written on it is by a machine. And so, yeah, the fact that elect, uh, uh, electronics has come so far and we no longer even have green screens, we have, you know, and the amount of things that I can get sitting at my desk. And then, and we have to give it to Florida for being a public record state as well, because everything's online for Florida, which is, you know, great for us. It's also great for criminals too. So <laughs> they, do, they utilize it as well. But but yeah, I mean, I, the things that I can do today that when I first started at FDLE is, you know, unthinkable. I mean, it just, I, you know, to think that back then I would be able to, you know, get, go and see images and pictures and, you know, at a, you know, click of my mouse and, and see driving photos and criminal histories within seconds and, and public record databases that give you literally everything to do with somebody in one click from everywhere they've ever lived to cars they've owned to, you know, I mean, it's so, yeah, you know, we, it's not as great as TV. I'll warn you. <laughs> People think, you know, the TV has it, they, they, those, they have it good. They get things much quicker on TV, but it's still pretty great that, that our, that today we have moved past, you know, literally hand searching to that's where I started. So I can't, you know, I know it's generic because everybody would have to say that, but it's the truth. That's, that's what's come so far at this point. It's the fact that I don't have to hand search anything anymore, <laughs> which yeah. I did when I started. You know, there's that concept of the Florida man, right? You get, you get all these headlines, Florida man wakes up sleeping with an alligator or something mm -hmm. crazy that happens. And the reason it's Florida that, that way is because of the sunshine laws that, like we talked about, and that most everything is available to public consumption. And I was even surprised that my wife was dealing with somebody in her office that got arrested. She was reading me the text that he sent back and forth to his wife. The case is still ongoing and that is out in public and she's sitting there reading the text messages that were submitted for evidence. And so it's crazy how much that you can yep. get out there. Yeah. Like I said, it's great for us and in, in those analysts that are searching to find things, but it can also be detrimental because of the fact that those criminals and people can do the same thing and see stuff yeah. that, you know, we may not want. So it's darned if you do, darned if you don't type thing. So uh, how about what are you surprised the profession hasn't figured out yet? I don't think it's the profession that hasn't figured out. I mean, I, I get surprised that not especially with sworn that all of sworn hasn't realized the non-sworn you know not all of them but that some of them you you it's almost like you have to show them what it is we can do before they kind of they kind of hold their their cards closed and you mm -hmm. think by now they wouldn't that you know anybody coming on board would should know that their their non-sworn analytical can can be a huge asset and you don't okay. find that all the time and and you usually can win them over and but that's the sure. point that we have to continue to win people over that we have mm -hmm. to constantly show our you know our worth um to say you know hey look at us look what we can do for you you know i'm shocked that we still have to fight that battle sometimes i've had some people come in the door and and literally they're like, well, you know, I don't know if I should, you know, I don't know if you know what we're, you're looking for. And I just want to be like, I've been doing public corruption longer than you've been a cop. I, I don't know what you want. I mean, I mean, and then luckily they, they come, come around and, but, you know, and they realize, oh, wow, look what, look, look, look what they can do. And, but you'd think that it was a known thing now. And it, it's not always, you know, but luckily, like I've said, I have a great agency that totally supports and props up our analysts and believes in us. And, you know, but like I said, you have those individuals, it's that individual aspect of it, of, you know, when somebody comes in new that they're like, oh, well, who are you? And what can you do for me? I think mm -hmm. you should know that by now. So <laughs> that's frustrating sometimes. But like I said, it's not everybody. It's just, you know, it's usually that handful of people that, you know, you're just like, well, 
I wish you knew, wish, wish it was a, a, a given. I wish it was a given by now, but yeah. we're still working on that. Maybe 10 years from now, it'll be a given. Yeah. And I, I, I think uh, a lot of it deals with they have to be responsible for every bit of information that's part of the case mm-hmm. and that they have to be able to defend it against yep. cross-examination. And I think that's where they just don't come to analyst right away. It's what you said, like, all right, what can you do for me? It's not, it's not necessarily that they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to go to that person right away. It's like, they're questioning it and not sure how you fit in. And I think because they have to get questioned about every single bit, they're only going to bring people into the fold that they can truly trust. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, you wish that it was, that was already there on, and like I said, it's not everybody. It's just on a, you know, you have that handful that come in the door and they're like, "Mm, I don't know. And you just, you wish that it was, you know, a known thing that we're, we're here to help. We're here to help you. We're here to, you know, make your case better. And to, so yeah, you just, you wish sometimes that that. Yeah. And, and the worst thing an analyst can do is not come through, right? Right. Because then you just, (laughs) You self-fulfilling prophecy. You just proved why they don't need to use you because you you messed up. Not that I, I expect analysts to be perfect or anything, but right. if, no. But you have a very valid point. Absolutely. Yeah. So because I mean, if you do well, you're going to get more cases. If you mess up, you know, you're not going to get the best cases. At least not right away. There's going to be a period of time before somebody circles back with you. You know, it obviously takes what the mistake is and, and whatnot, but well, that, it, that goes back to don't be that analyst that that shuts <laughs> down when they don't get it right the first time. Um, you know, it, a lot of times, the, you know, the the person asking the the sworn or the you know whatever they they don't even know what they want, and and mm-hmm. so you know when you bring it back and and they say, oh, well, this isn't really what I was looking for. Don't be like, oh, well, that I screwed up. I didn't, you know, I did it wrong, and oh, I don't. They're never going to use me. Be a part of the solution be like okay well what did you need what you know what are you thinking what are you know communication it's about you know don't shut down i mean at that point you need to speak you you're not we're not mind readers you know (laughs) and sadly like i said because of the fact that sometimes you know whoever it is doesn't even know what they might even think that they want then you be a part of that solution you know tell them some things you know say were you thinking of this were you thinking of that what you know what else can i do that would would be more of what you were thinking instead of just shutting down and walking away and being defeated i mean you have to be part of the solution and and know that we're not we're not perfect we can't read minds and and um but you know we're all here to help and that's that's your job as the analyst to you know kind of see where you can best fit in and, and what analytical tool you can use to best you know, suit the investigation. You have to pull your bootstraps up and take that construction criticism and say, okay, well, if this isn't what you'd want, then what can I get for you? What What is it that you can see? And how can I make it better? And how can it be, you know, a lot of times people won't give that feedback unless you ask for it. You know, they'll just say, no, that's not what I needed. And they'll walk away and you'd be like, wait, well, what did you need? So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to Ialea now. And as I mentioned in your intro, you're an active member. You've been on the election committee. You're currently active with the Northern Florida chapter, and you are chapter support chair for ILEA. So I, I guess, I don't know, is there one place you want to start? Well, I mean, basically I joined ILEA in 2007, mm-hmm. and we had a Northern Florida chapter who was run uh, at the time by Christy Manzi, who was also the certification coordinator for ILEA for many years, and she was great. She was the president. She um, she is what introduced me to ILEA and really showed me the benefit of what it could do for me and for, you know, and what it's doing for the profession. But sadly, Christy was, you know, towards the end of her career at that point, and she was moving on, and so she needed people to take over the Northern Florida chapter for her. And so in 2009, I became an officer at the time uh, with the Northern Florida chapter. And we really took it under our wing and, and thought, okay, well, let's see what we can do with this. And we proceeded at that time to start, we literally started, we quadrupled the amount of membership we had in the next three years and really brought it to the forefront of, we want people to come to these meetings and walk away going, huh, that was worth my time. That was worth, you know, I got something out of that. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure you're roundtabling and get people to talk and, and get people to say, what, what problems are you having? What, what issues are you having? What things 
do you are great? What, what have you found new databases? Have you had a, you know, a, a great, you know, success story that you can share that people can learn from? What is it, you know, all these different, you know, things we're here to help each other out and share our, our skills and our resources. And being the officers at the time, we were there to facilitate that and facilitate that roundtable discussion on, you know, how can we, you know, do our jobs better? How can we be better analysts? And it really took off. And I've been an officer since that time, um, majority of the time spent in the president's seat. Currently now I'm sitting as secretary and we have some other uh, members that uh, stepped up just this January. So I'm excited about that and seeing what they can do and what new ideas come about. But as far as international is concerned, I became more active once I became president. I was obviously an officer for a while and then I became president. That really, you know, once I started dealing with the international board and things on that nature, I really saw, I mean, what, I mean, they, it's just, I can't go on about how, what a wonderful organization. I mean, it, people talk about joining a professional organization for the career that you're in, you know, and what it can do for you. And, I, and this is no better example than ILEA and, and how it supports the international uh, law enforcement intelligence analysts around the world. Just vowing to bring training and certifications and the conference every year, you know, is great. And just, you know, I, I can't say, say enough good things about it. And currently, though, I, I have to say that I've always been pro chapters, the local chapters. And that's why recently I was appointed as the chairman of the chapter support committee to help out with the chapter director in fostering chapters that are either dwindling or um, or start have have become defunct and now want to restart and or you know just any any chapter support whatsoever, whether you're a thriving chapter like Northern Florida or brand new one like Southern Florida, like we have whatever we need to do so that they, that we're representing the, uh, the international side of it and that international is here for them and we're here to help them do whatever they need to do to become a successful local chapter. Because I feel like that's where we get most, I mean, you see, we have four meetings, four meetings a year for Northern Florida. So four times of a year in the quarterly, we meet and get together and network. And while international is great and does so many things great for us, you know, we don't have that one-on-one more often than not, you know, you see them, you know, because, you know, they have their annual conference, maybe at the annual conference, but that's why the locals is what really is the face to me of ILEA, because we're out there every quarter slinging it around and, and, and being like, Hey, let's see what we can do for this, you know, this world of analytics, you know, right now. So I'm very proud of our chapter and, and I'm so proud of ILEA International as a whole. And like I said, I can't, I can't have a conversation in reference to law enforcement analysts without talking about ILEA. So yeah. You know, for the chapters that are either dwindling in numbers or just almost to the point of being disbanded, what is your plan to rejuvenate these chapters? Well, that's right now, that's what we're doing. We, we have several actually states that are looking as the Mid-Atlantic State and Lone Star State that just was up and coming um, in Texas area. And what we're there for is first, we're here to help any chapter that's already there. But for those ones that are specifically in that defunct state, in that dis- disbanded state that want to say, hey, we need to get this back up and running. We're here to help them do that. How can we get the chapter started again? What, how do we get the people involved? How do we, you know, once we do get some people involved and they say, yeah, let's do this, how how are we going to go about getting bylaws written and, you know, a bank account open so we can collect dues and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then also what training, a lot of people, I mean, training is like everybody's number one topic and priority is how to get trained. People want to learn, to constantly, you know, if you're, you're a good analyst always wants to be learning. Like I said, I've been in this career for 29 years. I always, I will never turn down a training, even if it's something that I like Excel that I I know Excel backwards, so I live in it every day. I will never turn down an Excel training. Inevitably, there will be something there that I learn and I find and I, I get like a tip or trick that I didn't know before. That's with all training. I mean, while some of it could be redundant, you're usually going to find something new and, and interesting that you didn't know before. And so a good analyst always wants to improve themselves. And so training is a big thing. And so that's what a lot of them want. How can we get training? How can we um, pay for training? How, and we are helping with that. We're, we're you know, Ilea has set up a way to, be able to front out money to to local chapters to help them with training. We've also started uh, the chapter director and I looking into saying, let's all talk about who we're using. Nowadays, we're going a lot of this digital Zoom meetings and and go to meetings where um, you don't necessarily have to have that trainer or that person that's going to speak on a certain topic in your area. They can be from somewhere else. They can be across the whole state, you know, like across the whole, you know, United States. 
wouldn't still be able to present to your local chapter because of this new digital format that people are getting into and forcing people into this digital way of life and how to do it. Um, so those are all the things that we're helping them with. ILEA also has, the international has um, has exactly that for them, a, a format to be able to have, hold a virtual meeting. And so we're getting them to, uh, you know, because some agencies, you know, some analysts don't have that in their agency where they're able to use it. And actually they might be able to take part, but they can't plan one for themselves and have a meeting. And so ILEA gives that to them. So they're like, hey, if you want to have a virtual meeting, we've got the platform for you. So yeah, we've been working with a few and trying to reach out to, to the ILEA members that are in the area and then people who might want to be in ILEA and then see if we can, you know, get some chapters back up and running. So we're really mm-hmm. excited about it. So, and you can't say Northern Florida. What's some of the best chapters out there right now? Oh, Washington, D.C., the capital. Oh, we obvious for obvious reasons, Washington, D.C., that chapter is very, uh, it's just great. There's no getting around it. They, for obvious reasons in the sex, that their membership is very, very large because of the fact that almost every, what, federal agency was, is within a five mile radius of each other. They're all, you know, there's, you know, and then not only that, just tons of law enforcement around that area. So yeah, they have a great chapter and they do a lot of great training, very, very active members. So yeah, that, you know, and that's the other thing you have to have is not only just have the chapter, but then active members, members who want to take part and participate. And that's what, again, we're trying to help with. How do you get your members to want to, to, you know, be involved. And, you know, so yeah. And like I said, I'm a big believer in the roundtable discussions. And so I've been trying to get people to see that, you know, that's the thing, you know, at Florida, when we would go back and when we were just starting and they said, well, what was it that you enjoyed about coming to the meeting? What was it that, you know, and they'd come back and they'd be like, well, we like the discussions that was going on. You know, we like the speaker too. You know, they'd say they like the speaker, whoever it was that we asked to speak during the meeting, but they'd be like, you know, and I, and I learned about this and I learned about this database, or I learned about that everybody else is having a problem with this. And, you know, or like, I didn't know that this was whatever, you know, you get my point. And mm-hmm. so they turned out and then they kept, it kept them coming back. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, some of the chapters I've met with during the conferences, some of the members and the officers, they're like, well, how do you do, you know, how do you do, how do you get them talking? And I said, you do, you're, you're the facilitator, you, you and the officers, if you start talking to them and you start asking questions and you start the conversation, people will jump in and people will start, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she's saying this, you know, I'm going to, you know, I have this and they'll jump into the conversation and, and you have to facilitate it. If you just say, does anybody have anything you want to talk about? <laughs> Everybody will just sit there, you know, they'll be like yeah. dead. You'll hear the crickets, you know? So um, I said, you, you get them started. You, you get them, you facilitate it. You get them the, the conversation moving and most definitely people will, will start to open up and, and share. And that's, like I said, they, you walk out going, wow, I just, you know, I, I just learned something I didn't know before. And people like that people want, you know, they want to feel like they get, I don't want to say get their money worth because, you know, but get their time, time is it right now. I mean, you know, analysts have to go away from their, their job duties to come to a meeting. You want to be able to say, Hey, that was worth it. Yeah. All right. And uh, we'll put in the show notes there, the link to the, the 40th anniversary episode that Kelly was on where it was on chap ILEA chapters. And so they can certainly get more information there. All right, Kelly, let's move on and uh, talk about personal interests. For you, you're a vampire person, which I find fascinating. So when did the love of vampires come about? When I, okay. So I joke about this, uh, you know, hey, because everybody, there's lots of people that like, like, especially young adults that love vampires. And all that. I loved them when they were before everybody else loved them. So I keep, I, I, I get that, that little gold star for saying that I'm not a follower, I'm a leader. And uh, <laughs> when I was in high school, I think maybe it was middle school. I don't know when, when the movie came out, but Lo- the movie Lost Boys came out and I just mm-hmm. loved it. And, you know, So from that point forward, I just started uh, an interest in watching shows or movies about vampires. And what was interesting was, and I always, this is my claim to fame. I went to Florida State University and you have to take a minimum for any bachelor's degree, a minimum of uh, two semesters of an English, you know. And so the first English is always a required one that everybody has to take. But then your second one, you can do it in a specialized area. You can take it on short stories. You can take it on baseball. You can take one on. And they had all. And then sure enough, this is the second semester of my year in college. (laughs) I see there's an ENC class on vampires. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is all me. So I took the class and we, what the class insisted of is where you would read books on vampires. You read Dracula, you read Salem's Lot by Stephen King. You read, you know, I mean, anything to do with it. 
then you you know would write about the books and the whatever the reading was or even write your own thing. it was great it was just greatness personified it just like seriously hit it for me and then of course came the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I loved the movie and therefore after the movie and Josh Whedon by the way who is the creator <laughs> of it um of Buffy the Vampire Slayer he had a show and that became literally my favorite show of all time is Buffy the Vampire and everybody knows it's a big joke I have a literally on the back of my car and there my husband bought me a tag about three Christmases ago that said I'd rather be watching Buffy um I have you know stuffed animals and lunch boxes and I have a poster in my office signed poster by the cast currently in my office so yeah it, it's been a few years since it's been off the air but it doesn't matter I love all things because of course through the years it's gotten even more with you know Twilight and all that you know anything vampires you know, you know witches werewolves I'm it's got good to go I'll, I'll take it Yeah, so I was going to ask you about Twilight, because uh, Twilight does seem to be different for for some of those. Some people are really involved with it. Some of them just roll their eyes as soon as they start sparkling. So (laughs) I guess I was kind of curious where you, you fell into that. Oh, I'm a fan. I'm like I said, it doesn't matter. Yes, I agree. They do spark. They're not like Buffy, where they they yeah no, but they it's still greatness. It's still oh no, absolutely. I I love it. I love yeah. anything. Like I said, there's not there's very rarely anything out there with vampires that I don't find enjoyable. <laughs> so you're the cheesy ones. Yeah, we when we also talked in the prep call, you were talking about that you're also an MCU fan. Marvel mm-hmm. Cinematic Universe. So you have to be excited with the fact that they're making a Blade series. Is this Blade uh-huh. series or movie? I can't remember. But yes. Blade is coming back. Yes, it is. And that's to me, yeah. I mean, like I said, and, and let's not forget about Morbius that's coming out. So oh, that's I true. Mean, I have it all on my on my schedule, ready to go, ready, ready to watch. <laughs> all right. Well, very good. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words of the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Kelly, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Wow. Okay. Yeah, get it. Wow. Words of the world. I think I think the most I want to talk about, I, I have this quote that I love. I want to say in today's world, people are quick to jump to conclusions without all the facts, especially with what we're dealing with in the press nowadays. And to quote Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird, people generally see what they look for and hear what they listen for. So as analysts, we have to be diligently applying our critical thinking skills in order to draw conclusions based on known evidence and not assumed evidence. We should recognize our assumptions and biases to make sure that we are looking through clear glasses and we do not jump to conclusions and we don't conclude our biases and our judgments. So that's what I, that's the only thing, I mean, cause so, it's so prevalent today and, and we have to be careful of it. And we have to, like I said, we're here to find the truth and the facts and, and not to bring our biased, um, you know, views and, or, or, you know, our quick judgments into any. So that's the only thing I've had to say. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with who you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. That's always, I, I wouldn't <laughs> doubt it. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Kelly. Thank you so much. Did you be no safe? No problem. Thank you. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.